Why are there so many colleges and universities in the United States? Why are they so similar and yet so different? And how did it get to be this way? This week on College for Christians, we'll survey the complicated, confusing landscape of American higher education. I'm Chris Garretts, professor of history at Bethel University, joined as always by... Sam Mulberry, professor of history at Bethel University. (laughs) That rhymed, kind of. It Uh, did. So last week, Sam, we considered various reasons why Americans go to college. We talked about everything from preparing for jobs, forming relationships, maybe becoming better citizens, experiencing personal transformation, or maybe just the sheer love of learning. There are dozens of reasons why to go to college, but even more confusingly, there are literally, for Americans, thousands of places you can go to fulfill those objectives. So today and then next week, we'll survey those options to help you understand the similarities and differences. So today is the very broad kind of survey. Next week, we'll look a little bit more about religious institutions and specifically ask what a Christian college is and why they're also different and similar. As always, let us know your questions and comments. You can email us at channel3900 at gmail.com. Now, Sam, I feel like each of these episodes has been a little bit different. We were telling stories. The first one last week was a pretty good back and forth conversation. I feel like maybe for this week and next, I'm a little bit more of the sort of guest who's been brought in to answer some questions about past and present. So I'm going to let you ask questions. I will respond and like, please just feel free to interrupt if what I'm saying doesn't seem to make sense because there's jargon here and there's history here. And I, I want to try to explain as much of it as we can. Sure. If this was a film, you would be like Basil Exposition <laughs> at this point, just laying out information we need to know in order for, for us to have conversations later about this. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe just to sketch a little bit of the background, I, I don't think people in America realize just how unusual it is that we have so many colleges and universities. So let me start with some statistics like we did last time. This comes from the National Center for Educational Statistics or Studies, Department of Education. So as of 2019-20, there are approximately 4,000 what we call post-secondary institutions, so higher ed, post-high school institutions in the United States that are accredited to grant degrees. I don't know if we'll talk more about accreditation. That's its own kind of podcast. But, uh, I mean, there are non-accredited places, too, that grant degrees. But these are places that can get federal financial aid is, is one of the big differences. Now, to understand the comparison, a lot of American higher ed is influenced by universities first in England. Think Oxford, Cambridge, you know, residential model of education with broad liberal arts and then German research universities in the 19th century. Uh, the UK and Germany have hundreds of colleges and universities. I think the UK is like around 300, Germany might be 400, upwards of 500. But even allowing for the bigger population here, like it's way out of whack. Well, actually, because I was, this is the first thing as I was reading through your script that I was blown away by, just to give a sense of this, and maybe you can explain why this is. Uh, But Germany has about 83 million people. Mm -hmm. If we use the number 400, that's about one institution for every 200,000 people. Mm -hmm. The UK, it's one institution for every every 168,000 people. In the US, it's one institution for every 82,000. Why are there so many more here? Is is it a difference in how we view higher education, the models? Yeah, and maybe what, so what we'll do, I think it's a good starting point, then I want to kind of break it down a little bit, and maybe we can even answer it better once we get to the different types, because I think there are different reasons for each type of why they've grown. Let me say, probably like two short answers. Um, 
first of all, the history is just deeper in a place like the UK. It, it, it was harder to start universities, right? Like you needed some kind of official sanction, some charter. American higher education, like a lot of American history, is pretty entrepreneurial. Someone just decides to start something that fails or it doesn't fail. And at a certain point, we recognize it as a college university. Uh, and a lot of it is actually literally happening on the frontier as it moves and as immigrant populations come in. Uh, the other is just like, it takes a while to get to the point where Americans simply assume, well, it seems like everyone's going to go to college, at least to some extent. We talked about this last week. It's not everyone, but it's a pretty good chunk of everyone. Historically, this has not been true in Europe, and it persisted for a much longer time. Um, in Germany, for example, it's intentionally limited, the number of people who can go to college. And at least in Germany, you're really tracked into this very early on. Like traditionally, it's around age 10 or so, you enter a certain kind of educational track that takes you to like what we would think of as a university, or maybe it's what's called a, a technische Hochschule, a technical school of some sort, or into vocational training. Right. And so there, there's, there's much more of a sense in most European countries, like there's not a single educational path that winds up in college and then you decide what your life is going to be. Those decisions are happening much earlier and there's a much more focused, specialized pathway depending on what that focus is going to be. So as you look at the, at that difference, do you feel like American students are overserved in uh, terms of like the, the, the number of options that they have? I mean, do we have too many? Uh, this is where I want to wind up because I think okay. in some senses it seems like this is great, this is fantastic, and I also feel like there it actually complicates the whole thing. It's one of the reasons I hope this podcast is useful because it just it's hard to sort it out. So let, let's start to sort by breaking this down. So four thousand some accredited degree granting post secondary institutions. Now of those, um, about a thousand are two year institutions. So I want to say more about community colleges along the way because they have their own interesting story we tend to overlook. About 700 four year schools are for profit. We might briefly say something about for profit, Ed. I think we should. I, I actually, because th this is another one. I'm trying to view this as if I didn't know anything or questions what I have. So the, this was another thing that jumped out to me because I actually like, okay, what is the difference between those? Like when we say something is for, I mean, I know literally what those words mean but what does that mean in terms of an educational institution yeah why don't we come back to this point so what i want to do is give kind of a national survey okay. we're going to look at minnesota and look at more specific Perfect. examples so let me just kind of flake that for a sec okay so uh, about a thousand two-year institutions 700 four-year for-profit and so of the about three thousand or so that are left but well, not even three i my numbers are off here but of those that are left about half are public nonprofit, about half are private nonprofit. And of that group of like, um, nonprofit four year institutions, they vary a lot. They're as small as Deep Springs College is my favorite example. It's a little two year institution in California where 20 students spend two years working on a ranch and studying for zero tuition. And then they go somewhere else. And it's as large as Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas, which has over 70,000 students, including about 2000 who are in a corps of cadets training to be ROTC military officers. And I'm not even getting into schools that are primarily online, which are even bigger than that, right? So, um, it varies by state. California, where Deep Springs College is, that's one of 416 in this larger group of about 4,000. Texas, like New York and Pennsylvania, has over 200. But the smallest, like Delaware and Alaska, have only eight. Minnesota has uh, <clears throat> over 80 and it ranks 16th as of 2019-20. 
So to maybe make this a little bit easier to answer, I thought we'd look at our own state. We're in Arden Hills, Minnesota, as we record this, suburban St. Paul. We'll kind of think about these 80-some Minnesota schools, and maybe that gives us a, a way to sort of zero in a little bit. So, <laughs> Although we, that is that does mean we're saying goodbye to the 20 ranching students. We're not going to be talking about that's that. That's right. One. Sorry, ranching <laughs> students. Okay, let me start at the for-profit, because you asked about that. So uh, there are seven accredited for-profit institutions in Minnesota. The one I know best is called Capella University, because my brother works there. It's entirely online. It's uh, at least until it merged with a, a um, another company slash university called Strayer was entirely graduate education. So my brother works with mostly teachers and principals getting their doctorate in education or educational leadership. So it's for profit. It, it has uh, stockholder. I think it's publicly traded as stockholders, a board of directors. So it was founded and then they did a public offering and their job is to make money for their stockholders. Right. But they also feel like they're providing a service. Capella specializes in making graduate education more accessible, especially to professionals who need, you know, not just to move up a pay scale, but to move up in rank or status or to add skills or retool. They need access, but it's hard for them to, like, go to a residential college for four years. So around the world, they log on and they take um, these classes in order to add skills as, like, educational administrators. Uh, and this makes money then for that company. But in a sense, it actually does make education more accessible. So I'd say that's kind of the common thread running through for-profit education. Is that a growing sector? Of, so, I mean, like, like I mean, I, I assume if we went back a hundred years, we wouldn't find a lot of – a lot of for-profit colleges, but is it is that something that is continuing to be a growing? I don't know if it's growing. It was growing under the Trump administration, which was very for-profit friendly. There's historically been a lot of tensions about the regulation of for-profit, the accreditation of for-profit. Concerns are raised by the other schools about like the quality of these. Um, uh, but I would say, actually, this is a pretty old model. For example, there's a place called Rasmussen University. Uh, when I was growing up in Twin Cities was Rasmussen Business College. So it was founded, I think, around the start of the 20th century in Stillwater, Minnesota, and it was a business college. This was actually a pretty common model. If you wanted to go into business, you didn't go to a university or college. You went to a business school to train in the skills you would need to succeed in business. And so that's always been around. A lot of these have like health science kind of connections of some sort. I mean, so the common thread is they make money for people. That is their purpose. But it also, the argument that's made is in some ways they are more flexible, more adaptable. They better sit, suit the needs of a wider variety of students, not just uh, middle class 18 year olds who want to go live on a campus somewhere and four years later enter the workforce. Are there for profit face to face colleges at this point or is it I mean, it's, it's largely online but yeah i mean it, increasingly in the last 20 years it's moved online but yeah i mean like uh, there's some training you need to do if you're going to work as a nurse right and you can go to these kinds of schools and there are clinical sites you go to but for example one of them actually holds their uh, commencement ceremonies at bethel because they don't have an auditorium because why would you because they don't have a choir or an orchestra or chapel service right so they have space but it's very focused on professional sure. training and then, like, support staff kind of things. So that that's for-profit. And uh, I don't know if it's growing or not at this point, but it, it's certainly an option that working adults and people at different stages in their careers are going to use. Okay, uh, let's talk about two-year colleges. So um, about half of Minnesota's 80 colleges and universities are public. So I think that we all know what that means because we know what public education is. But at higher ed, it means that they draw significant shares of their revenue from 
taxpayers, right, from state legislatures who approve a budget that has a line dedicated to higher education in that state. And that would lead lead you to think that the tuition would be lower at a right. at a public school. So historically, it means the state, well, taxpayers really are subsidizing the educa- higher education of the citizens of the state. So we'll, we'll probably talk more about that. Now, what I think we often overlook is most of those are two-year schools. So in Minnesota, as of, again, 2019-20, there were 32 community and technical colleges. That number is going to go down. I think it was last week, a group of schools up in northern Minnesota announced they're going to merge into a single larger college that has multiple campuses. But two-year schools are really important. About a third of all American undergraduates uh, are attending community college. Uh, most of them are fairly small. But one of the single biggest colleges in the United States is Miami-Dade Community College, which has over 100,000 students at eight campuses. It's an enormous institution. Um, and the history is really interesting. So these started as what were called junior colleges in the early 20th century. And uh, it, it's mostly because uh, research universities, we'll talk about those, wanted to be more like German research universities. They wanted to do specialized kinds of training and research, and they weren't interested in the kind of you know, first and second year table setting that we do in like gen ed courses, right? And so the proposal coming out of the University of Chicago was, well, we should have a junior college that does that kind of work for us so we can focus on advanced, focused, specialized um, kinds of research and teaching. But then in the 1920s, and especially during the Great Depression, there's a different sort of motive, which is we need to make higher education available to more Americans, not just to the most intellectually gifted, the most socially privileged, privileged, the wealthiest. But in the Great Depression, uh, two-year college enrollment soared because people were out of work, but they wanted to train for a different kind of job. And so these options started to open up. So Bethel was founded as a junior college in 1931 and only became a four-year college after World War II. So when we look at at, at at two-year colleges, junior colleges, community mm-hmm. colleges, what I'm familiar with people walking out of those with an associate of arts yep. degree because that's the most common thing that would a student would transfer to Bethel with. Are there other degrees being offered or, or certificates or like what types of things? Because I assume not everybody who goes to a two-year college, even if they thrive there, necessarily goes to then a four-year college. Right. I mean, they, they serve at this point a variety of functions. And the next big expansion is after World War II, which generally is this is when American college numbers really increase because with the GI Bill and other kinds of federal and state financial aid, access to college increases for many more Americans. And so there's uh, a supply and demand kind of function happening. And so community colleges in Minnesota are mostly in the 60s and 70s. And they're often kind of like an outgrowth of a high school. It's the next step. You're not ready for a four-year college or you can't afford it. So you go and you take either a full associate degree, which is a two-year degree that's kind of the baseline general education. That's kind of what junior colleges did. Or you take a few classes to then transfer in at some point to a four-year school, or you do vocational training or technical training. And so you can get certificates and licenses in very focused kinds of areas. Um, that a four-year college might not see the purpose of, might have sure. the da- demand for, but there's a public need for people to fill these different jobs, and you don't necessarily need a four-year degree to to train for them. And so a community college, whether it's for a year or two years, you know, continuing over a period of time, you can train and get a kind of credential that way too. And then I think another thing that people use those for that I see a lot are folks who it's not even that they're not academically ready for a four-year college, but they're not sure what they want to do. So they think, well, I don't want to stop taking classes, but I also 
don't know what I want to study. So it's a way to kind of keep the academic wheels turning while they explore. Yeah, I think I, I'm a big fan of community colleges. I have an uncle who is the dean of sciences at community college in Idaho. I, I think they fulfill a really vital role in society because not everyone is ready at age 18 to go straight into what I think when we say college, most of us assume. And increasingly, this is, we're going to talk, I'm sure, in an episode about the blurring line between high school and what we think of as college. Like, this this historically has been where the line has always been blurred and usefully blurred in many respects, whether it's for financial reasons or readiness reasons or just kind of stage of life reasons or family situation reasons. Like, it's a very useful place where you can keep studying out of high school and move towards college. And increasingly, you get formalized relationships where four-year colleges say, we will take these course, this set of courses, the individual courses, this associate's degree, so you can just pick up where you left off as you move into your junior and senior years of a four-year college. Yeah. So, for example, my son, who is a high school junior, currently takes courses at his high school through Anoka Ramsey Community College. And yeah, and it's and that's a pretty seamless thing. So, high schools also have yeah. connections with those. Okay. So, minus then the community college. Colleges. There are also 12 public universities in the state of Minnesota. So if I counted right, five are campuses of the University of Minnesota and seven are members of what's now called the Minnesota State University. <laughs> my fear was that sentence was going to be name them. And I was like, oh, no, okay. <laughs> I think I could. But I don't want to lose my my uh, gravitas here. So I mean, when I think about Minnesota and I think higher education, I would assume uh, you, you think the University of Minnesota and you think the Twin Cities campus mm-hmm. of the University of Minnesota, which is huge, right? I mean, like a lot of Big Ten schools, it's 50,000 some students. Mm-hmm. It's enormous. It's really multiple sites. It feels like a city. It's like its, like its own itself, city yeah. with its own police force, its own economy, right? Um, I think what's really important, and maybe some language to unpack, is that it is a land-grant institution, and it's a research-one institution. Let's start with land-grant. <laughs> so in the middle of the Civil War, um, a lot of things are happening, right? Like, it's Republicans dominate Congress. One of their missions is to actually have federal investment to approve the American economy, the American way of life. And the Morrill Act is passed. And the Morrill Act allows the federal government to grant land to states on which to build educational institutions. So you can find these all over the place, but most kind of classically, it's the Midwest, right? Think Big Ten schools. These are land-grant institutions. So that big piece of land that's like a city has been set apart for the state of Minnesota to develop a public institution. Now, what you do with that can vary, right? Some of these are going to be very kind of broad education. Some are very focused like agricultural or engineering or mining kinds of applications, but it serves the needs of the people of the state is the idea. And it's meant, I think, to be relatively egalitarian, open to people. Um, there's eventually then debates about how can they be segregated, right? Should they not be segregated? Um, but in some ways, this is the great one of the great accomplishments of the American higher ed system, right? That the higher ed is meant for the people. It's meant to serve the needs of the people. Um, it's overseen democratically in a sense, right? I mean, it's, it gets filtered through the governor and the state legislature, board of regents of some sort. But in a sense, like those institutions are accountable to the voters and the taxpayers, right? Like that, that's a kind of model that we see in public education a lot. Um and uh, it's a research one institution. So I think here's a line that we're going to have to talk about being blurred, which is the difference between university and college. So um, a research one institution has to meet certain criteria. It, it means it is an elite institution dedicated to the discovery of new knowledge and the transmission of new knowledge. 
And that can be like, I think it's easiest for us to think of the sciences, right? You've got a chemistry lab or you've got someone doing vaccination research, but it can happen in any discipline. You can do this in architecture or in health science or in history, right? Like you went to the University of Minnesota to get a master's degree from a department where you had to do research as part of earning that credential. So to get that status, you have to award at least 20 doctorates and spend over $5 million just on research. And so this past year, I think nine more schools, including like Baylor University, became Research One. So altogether, there's something like 137 are Research One institutions. Now, I know for graduate school, the idea of attending a Research One graduate school is a very meaningful thing. Yep. Um, what does it mean as an undergrad to uh, to attend? Because these, I presume, just based on some of the numbers you said, are going to be big schools usually, right? Then in order to have the money to put into that, to have those programs, um, does that uh, – I'm sort of setting you up here. Does that equate necessarily to a better undergrad experience? It depends what you want. Uh, and we'll probably wind up here too because you should be listening to this thinking, okay, is this a good fit for me, for my child? And like it could be, right? What, Especially if what you want to do is we're going to require more than four years of undergraduate schooling. Like if you know that I want to go to medical school, I want to go get a doctorate in something, it's not a bad idea to start where you're going to get to do hands-on research with world-class experts right from the start. Now, the question is, at least early on, are you ever going to meet those world-class experts, right? My uncle is an astrophysicist at the U of M. He actually likes teaching the kind of like intro to astronomy class, but I think he's fairly unusual. And I think it's probably because he's done it a million times and he has TAs do his grading for him. But if you want like a personalized kind of experience where you get to know your professors well right away, that is not the kind of place you want to go because most of their teaching load is with graduate students and their teaching load is small because they're supposed to be doing research, right? And that's being funded uh, through the institution or grants of some sort. I mean, in some ways, they're very exciting places to be. And not just like the labs, but like I remember visiting Anderson Library at the U of M a few years ago and to realize you're at this like center of like the production of knowledge and it's serving the needs of all sorts of other people and libraries and institutions. It just depends on what you want out of your four years of college, if that's what you're going to do your college at. Like, it can be a very anonymous kind of place, and it's not a place with, like, a low student-faculty ratio until you get to very high levels and you're right. working, like, in a lab side-by-side -side with people. So I think that's what you have to think about, like, well, what do you want out of that kind of education and what's going to come after that level of education? Okay, um, but there are other kinds of universities, too. The seven Minnesota state campuses – uh, draw lots of transfer students. They are basically non-selective. I think for all of them, if you have a high school diploma from Minnesota or an equivalent, you are able to attend those places. Most of them began as what were called normal schools, which is a terrible name. I wish I remember <laughs> why, but they're teacher training schools. And, and so most of them started in kind of like late 19th, early 20th century as the local teacher training college because high schools were developing in the early 20th century in the Midwest and other parts of the country. And so teachers were not trained in universities or liberal arts colleges. They were trained in teacher colleges. Um, next door, the state of Wisconsin had a whole system like this. And then the sixties, it became the UW system. So like my grandmother had a couple of classes at what now is UW river falls because she was thinking of becoming a teacher in the 1930s. And that's kind of what's happened with Minnesota, Minnesota state campuses. 
but they've changed along the way. We'll come back to that. Okay, and then to get closer to the home, to home, there are also in Minnesota over 30 private nonprofit colleges and universities. And a few of these are highly focused. Minneapolis College of Art and Design obviously is focused on art and design. Some of them are at graduate levels, like United Theological Seminary. Uh, there's one freestanding law school called Mitchell Hamlin. That's an old kind of model that's really going away. Uh, most of them then are four-year colleges, offering four-year degrees in a wide variety of fields to people who are basically 18 to 24-year-olds, and they mostly live on campus. So they're mostly residential, and they're private. And I think we'll talk more about them next week, because almost all of them in Minnesota originally started as an outgrowth of a church or had a religious mission of some sort. Now, another phrase that you used was liberal arts. So um, I am assuming most of these small privates are liberal arts schools? Yeah. And so... Um, we'll, we'll talk more about it. some of them made very specific, like religious missions. Some of them really started as a seminary and then group. But what they have in common is at a certain point in the 20th century, they had a robust sort of curriculum that was very broadly general. You were not there to focus in a field. And even when you did focus in a field, it probably was in the humanities or it was in the social sciences or the natural sciences or in the arts or literature or theology, right? It was not necessarily you were training for a particular kind of job. You were, you were studying, you were learning, you were uh, maybe integrating faith and knowledge. And then out of that, you were preparing yourself either to keep on studying at a seminary or a law school or a medical school or at the University of Minnesota or that you could pick up skills and you could enter lots of different jobs because you're an English major or a biology major, right? So we'll, we'll talk more about liberal arts as we go along because we'll, we'll have a whole episode just about majors and gen ed. And we'll try to flush that out there. So we get to the end of the survey, at least when I was jotting notes down, Sam, it struck me what well, you already alluded to. In some way, this is great, right? Man, like Americans, you've just got the, the world is your oyster. You've just got a million choices. And like, as long as you're willing to go anywhere and you can afford it, you can, how can you not find a school that's perfect for you? There are 4,000 options out there, right? Now, not everyone wants to go everywhere. Increasingly, American college students actually want to stay closer to home for various reasons. Not everyone can afford to go to all these places, some of which are much more expensive than others. But I think the other big challenge is that over time, these institutions have all become a lot more like each other than they used to be. And there are a lot of ways these are happening. So we've already mentioned like the blurring line between community college and four-year college. Uh, but let me give you a couple other examples. So formally specialized schools have become comprehensive institutions. Places that used to just train teachers are now Minnesota State University, Mankato, Moorhead, et cetera, et cetera. <coughs> And they are offering all sorts of different programs that are mostly not training teachers, right? So that, that's part of what's happened is specialization mostly has broadened where it used to be very narrow. While liberal arts colleges, especially in the 70s and 80s, but even after World War II, started adding teacher training and business and nursing and social work and now engineering and architecture, the kind of things that used to go to a land-grant university to do. Um, and meanwhile, the Langrat University also has like a gen ed curriculum and it claims to give you a broad education of some sort. And so, I mean, except for the very smallest kind of nichiest sorts of schools, they're almost all offering the same basic core of academic programs. And they all have something like a core curriculum or uh, gen ed. And they almost all will say something about liberal arts at some point. And it becomes very hard just in terms of academics to tell them apart, except for cost and size, really, are the big differences in, like, facilities, right? 
So I think in some ways that makes it a lot harder because we're now all competing with each other. I would say the other thing that's difficult, and I didn't bring this up last week when we were talking about um, sort of why to go to college. Um, I With so many, it's hard to even get your head around. If there were 10 schools, you'd be like, I could learn about those 10 schools and pick the right one. Um, so, I mean, I look at this and think, okay, so the only schools I would think about, and this is pretty close to what I did, were either schools that I knew somebody who went there. Mm-hmm. Schools, I mean, schools in Minnesota I would have heard of, but even that's often through sports and then generally through sports. Mm -hmm. So as we're recording this, the NCAA tournament's going on. So it's like, oh, that's where I learn about where St. Peter's is, is because it's like, because, you know, they they won a game. So it's like, okay, I you know, things like that. So it's like, that seems so difficult to me. If I was a student, because maybe the right one for you is this school in Wyoming, but how are you ever going to know about it? Yeah, exactly. I I mean, you've got to find ways to narrow it down. And it's why I think sometimes it's vexing for like faculty who just went, well, why aren't you just thinking about the best academic fit? It's like, well, how do you know? Yeah. I mean, they all have a biology department and they all have a history major and they all have an English minor and they all have gen ed, right? And they all use words like liberal arts. And until you're actually in the classes studying with professors, how do you know? Which is, mm-hmm. I mean, like that, I'm not even sure we have a good solution to that challenge, but I think that's why you say, okay, I'm just going to stay close to home. That's the first way. I'm only, or I can only afford like a certain level, or I've got to, I go to community college first. And then that probably starts steering you into mm-hmm. certain institutions, or you start making it based on sports or what the cafeteria is like, or a single like overnight experience of some sort. I mean, it's perfectly understandable. It's hard to manage too much choice, right? Like it's how I sometimes do feel in the grocery store. I wish just give me three cereals and I can pick one. I don't actually need a whole aisle full of them. Right. And it doesn't necessarily lead to better choice making at the end. You mentioned sports. Here's another, I think blurring of the line or another way this is all confused. That is our way that most of us kind of beyond like our like firsthand accounts, word of mouth accounts, just physical proximity it's because we see it in competitive sports. And here there is real confusion. There is something like 300 colleges and universities in the United States that compete at least at some level in Division One of the NCAA. But there are only 137 Research One universities, and some of them aren't in Division One. But I think we're, we're accustomed to thinking, well, Division One that must then be a top-tier elite university of some sort, right? And it doesn't always match then the kind of academic criteria that, that we use to determine like a research one institution. Um, here's another one. Just we keep using words like college and university interchangeably. They used to mean different things. And increasingly, either they're interchangeable or colleges are simply renaming themselves university. So I, you got your diploma from Bethel College. I did. I was hired by Bethel College. And then in 2004, it became Bethel University. And, you know, it wasn't quite an early adopter, but since then, many of its kind of peer institutions have done the same thing. I mean, so like what's helpful is if you actually find a place that calls itself a college, it's because they're trying to hammer home the sense that A, they're relatively small. They are not a research land grant university. They will have small faculty student ratios and probably that they have some sense of we are doing liberal arts within a residential college. I think that's originally what it really connoted. And it goes back to the colleges of like Oxford and Cambridge, whereas a university again goes back to 19th century Germany, which is all about conducting research to produce knowledge. It has nothing to do with things like character formation or spiritual development, right? And so a university for a long time meant that, 
like Oxford is a university, but it only has a kind of loose collection of colleges. The University of Berlin, right, is dedicated to laboratories producing research. And Johns Hopkins University in 1876 became the first kind of American version of that. And that really became then the model for what a university was for a long time. And for a variety of reasons, colleges have been renaming themselves universities, um, partly because uh, they're trying to get international students. And in like French, college means high school. And so université means something, right? And so that's what's happening. But I think the other side is like universities sometimes make themselves sound like colleges, right? They'll talk about like the student experience and the community you'll form and the relationships you'll form and the kind of like uh, feel you'll have. When my dad went to the University of Minnesota, it was purely because it was an inexpensive way for him to get courses that would prepare him for medical school. He lived at home. He commuted on a bus to and from. Right. And now, like, those are residential places to a significant extent that still talk about community and relationship and the things much smaller schools used to really emphasize. Okay. So this, this, I don't know if this muddies the waters more. Hopefully this clarifies. At least maybe it gives you some vocabulary and some history for how this is developed. Here again, please, like, ask questions. I get the feeling by the time we do a few of these, we're going to maybe stockpile some questions. We'll just do, like, a Q&A episode to kind of circle back and clarify things that we had to brush past. Them well, and, and the fact of the matter is, is our next episode is going to be going digging deeper because this is this is really setting up to, to sort of ask the next, next set of questions, kind of laying the groundwork so that we can think about, uh, I think, a, a, a later episode we're going to be talking about really this idea it's a word you've already used of fit yeah. and and sort of what are the questions that you ask when you're visiting a college to learn about what it is that they say about themselves you know so you can get past the language of community and <laughs> formation and those types of things to like well, what what does that actually mean here yeah so that'll be coming up in a couple of weeks the next one we want to do is uh, another survey but uh, smaller in some ways we want to think, what is a Christian college or what is a religious college? Because that is also complicated, diverse. Bethel is one kind of Christian college, but it's not the only one. And I think at least in this kind of podcast, because we call it College for Christians, that actually does tie very closely to fit. And it's an important kind of question, apart from all the other ones we've raised. If I'm a Christian, what kind of college should I go to? And the answer is, you could go to all of these kinds of colleges. It just your experience might be different at each, and you're going to have to think differently about what your goals are how they serve spiritual needs, where you find community, those, those kinds of problems. So stay tuned. Next time we'll be looking at the variety of Christian colleges in the already various higher education sector of the United States. Thanks for listening.